As you are having a seat, please turn with me to Titus chapter 3. A few years ago, I needed a new goal, and so I decided I wanted to learn how to speak modern Hebrew. You know, I'd, I'd learned a little bit of how to read the, the Hebrew text, Old Testament and seminary, but uh, they don't teach you how to speak the Hebrew language, ancient or modern. I thought, how cool would that be to learn how to speak modern Hebrew? So I, uh, I got online and, and I found a, a set of CDs. There was actually like five sets, but I ordered the first set of language CDs for modern Hebrew because the first set was free. I thought, well, you know, let me try this out, see if I can begin to learn this a little bit and uh, see how motivated I am. After all, it's free. And so I began learning a little bit about modern Hebrew, you know, and I put the CDs in my car for a while and I'm listening and repeating all these lines about, you know, how to find the bathroom and how to find a restaurant and stuff in modern Hebrew. And, um, you know, after a while, my my motivation just kind of waned, right? Because there's just not a lot of people around here that I can practice with (laughs) modern Hebrew. So uh, I, I, I set set it aside and I stopped practicing and um, then I got a bill for all five sets of modern Hebrew and it was like it was several hundred dollars I'm like man this is not this is not right at all so I called them up and I said well I didn't I didn't order all five sets well they said well you know actually you know when you ordered the first set I said right the first set that's free they said yeah well it's free but it's only free for 30 days Right? And then after 30 days, if you read the fine print, you have to buy the whole set, all, all five sets. And I said, but I only wanted the first set, the free set. I said, well, it's not free. It's only free for 30 days, but that's the set I want. I just want that one. They said, well, you can't have just that one. You have to buy all of them. I said, I don't want all of them. Right? And here's the problem. I said, well, you can then just go ahead and return. Just return the first set. We'll make you a deal. Just return the first set. But CDs are digitally irrelevant, right? I mean, who, who uses actually CDs? So what I had done with the CDs, I played them in my car for a little while, and then I had, I had downloaded the MP3s off of the CD. I downloaded the files onto my phone, and I had thrown the CDs away. And so I told Slay, well, I, I don't have that free set, the CDs any longer. She goes, well, okay, well then, you know, I'll make you a deal. You just, since you've thrown away, you can, you don't have to buy all five sets. You can just pay us for the first set. I'm like, okay, this really stinks. This really stinks because, I, I mean, the first set alone cost, I think, like 100 bucks. So I ended up paying and receiving nothing. And I ended up paying, and I didn't, because what had actually happened was when I lost motivation, I needed space on my phone. I had dumped the MP3 files as well. So I had nothing. I, had, I ended up with nothing. I paid, but, but had nothing. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes that um, that's a little like how we view salvation. Right? God says it's free. But actually, in the end, you're going to have to pay something for it, right? Yeah, it, it's free, but, but you need to pay up. And if you can't pay up enough, it might be that in the end you find you've paid a lot, but you end up with possessing nothing. And I suspect that there may even be a few of you here this morning that just struggle off and on, maybe not constantly, but off and on with some doubt and some insecurity. Do I really, really possess salvation? Is it really a gift from God? Is it really something that I, that I own and I own it forever? And it may not strike you always, but I have run into people throughout the church that believe in the doctrine of eternal security in their minds, but in their hearts they wonder, can I really know for sure? And you know what? That doubt robs you of joy. 
And that doubt robs you of, of a desire, I would argue, often to pursue God more deeply because you just don't know. Are you safe? Are you secure? On the other hand, I have seen when this, when this security sinks deeply, not into just somebody's heart, into somebody's mind, but into their heart and really grabs hold of them and they really begin to believe that God loves them and loves them eternally and will not let them go. I've seen the, the, the desire to be with Jesus and know Jesus just, just explode in people's lives. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that question specifically, uh, can I know for sure? And I want to give you three reasons that you can know for sure. First is this, I can know for sure because God saved me. Second, I can know for sure because I am new. And third, I can know for sure because God is faithful. So let's look at all three of these. First, I can know for sure because God saved me. Or to state it another way, uh, you did not save yourself. God saved you. I want you to read with me in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. In other words, God saved us because God wanted to save us. God saved us because God wanted to save us. God took the initiative toward us. God reached out toward us. When we were running away from God, God chased us down. Now, when Tristy and I used to be doing college ministry, we would frequently use the analogy of dating. We'd say, men, just like you, you chase after that woman and you pursue and you ask that girl out. And we would use this analogy and it really resonated with all our students. But I've discovered it doesn't resonate any longer because, guys, you don't ask girls out. So you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say you go after and you chase and you initiate and you do that. And so my first application point for this morning is very simple. College guys, go get a date. Okay? Um, Go get a date. Go ask the girl out. And girls, I want to tell you, your application point is if he asks you for coffee, it's not a proposal of marriage. So just relax. Everybody just needs to relax, right? And then my analogy will start working again. So my point is this, if we can move back into what we're actually talking about this morning, is this. God chases us down. It's not like we're chasing God down. God chases us down. A couple weeks ago, Zach was here preaching on sin, and I actually happened to have the week off, so I got to sit here and listen to him speak about sin. And he put up this slide, and it struck me in a new way, what he said. I really hadn't thought about it in these terms before. But his point was this. You know, we've often used this illustration in sharing the gospel. In my mind, I've used it before. How I pictured it is this person is standing and there's a chasm of sin separating God's on the other side and the person is longing to get across. And Zach reminded us and reminded me that that's not actually how it works. The person's not standing on the other side longing to get across. The person's standing on the other side and actually turning away from God, running away from God, an enemy in rebellion against God. That's humanity. Humanity wasn't longing to find God. Humanity was turning away from God And God was reaching across this chasm of sin to chase man down. We are saved because God saved us, because God wanted to save us, because God took the initiative. That's how salvation works. We are saved because God, through his power, accomplished salvation. Not because of our strength. Read with me again, chapter 3 of Titus, verse 5. It says, he, that is, God saved us. 
not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who's doing the action? Man, this is God acting. Paul says, this is God acting. We're living in rebellion, and it is God who chases us down and he saves us according to his power, his mercy, the washing of regeneration of his spirit, the pouring out of his grace upon us richly through Jesus Christ. So what's our part? Well, Blake talked about this a little last week in salvation. Do we have a responsibility? Yeah, it's, it's faith. We, we have to turn and respond. Does faith save us? No. God saves us through faith. But why are we required to respond? Well, yeah, we have to do something, and that is we have to say yes to God. Uh, to put it back in the, the dating world, the first time I asked uh, my wife, Tristy, for a date, she said no. The second time I asked her for a date, she said, let me think about it. <laughs> but I persevered, right? Man, I, I obviously, I won. I mean, I chased her down and I pursued. I went, but at some point, she had to say yes or we wouldn't be having this conversation or using this analogy whatsoever. She had to say yes. But the point is this. It's God who initiates It's God who chases. It's God who saves us. Now, one of the illustrations that I will frequently use in this process of talking about salvation and eternal security is uh, that of a chair. When you sit, we don't have any any chairs on here? No, I'll just use use this little podium thing here. Um, Now, if you imagine for a moment uh, that this is like salvation, right? This This is God. So um, it looks fairly sturdy, and I look out and I see my friend Mike Nugent. Mike Nugent said, yeah, you know, that, that's actually strong enough to hold you up, Brian. And I say, you know, normally Mike tells me the truth. I think he's a reasonably trustworthy guy. I'm going to trust, trust him that what he's saying is true, and I, and I will sit on it. I will sit on it. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little afraid, but I do. I go, okay, okay, I'm up. I'm up. Now, what is it that's holding me off of the ground? My faith? My confidence? My trust in Mike and his trustworthiness? No, what's holding me off of the ground is this, right? The object of my faith is what saves me because the object of my faith is able. It is reliable. It doesn't matter that I may have doubts and fears and concerns about its trustworthiness or I may even doubt Mike and what he's telling me is true. If the object is secure, then I'm secure because this is what's holding me off of the ground point is this. God has saved you. You have not saved yourself. Your faith doesn't even save you. Or your faith that is relatively strong one day and relatively weak another day. What saves you is the object of your faith. Have you put your faith in the proper object? God, then you are safe. You are secure. See, God saved you because he wanted to. God saved you by his power, not your own. God saved you although you did not deserve to be saved. Again, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. What were we deserving of? Well, Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 3, that we were deserving, actually, of the wrath of God. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. What we deserved was a punishment of our sins, and God had intended to do so because he is holy, 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 but instead he poured out that wrath upon Jesus. But what did we deserve? We didn't deserve grace. That's what grace is by its nature. It's undeserved favor of God. And so God has saved you, we're told later in Ephesians chapter 2, freely by his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast, no one can, can brag. The opposite of your merit, your work, is faith. And so as Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, it is a gift. It's the same word that he uses in Romans 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift. It's the word dorea. It means free gift. Okay, not just a gift, but a, a free gift. Is, is the gift costly? Yes. And again, as Blake explained last week, costly to the giver, free to the recipient. Costly to the giver, but free to the recipient. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So when I'm sharing the gospel, one of the verses that I frequently use is Romans chapter 4, verse 5, which says, now to the one who does not work, but believes. To one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The fact that he was willing to receive a gift. So you say to yourself, but doesn't God expect me to be holy? What, what if I don't live up to the standard? You won't. And you can't. Because the standard is absolute and utter perfection. Because that is the nature of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is a statement of the utter, complete perfection of God. You cannot reach that standard. And so I tell you, stop expecting that you can. In other words, you didn't deserve salvation in the first place. You can't lose what you never deserved. It is the gift of God. To give you another analogy, I think sometimes we view salvation like an insurance policy. And it's ours, but we have to keep paying the premiums. And if we stop paying the premiums, we're going to lose the policy. And even if we keep paying the premiums, as soon as we need to go make a claim on that policy, for those of you who have had an insurance policy and have gone to make a claim on the policy, you go to make a claim on the policy, and what do you discover? Well, actually, that's not covered, and that's not covered, and that's not covered. Not everything is covered. Oh, and you have an enormously high deductible. Didn't you read the fine print? And that's kind of how we see salvation. Yeah, it's mine and I possess it, but I got to keep paying on that policy. When I go to make the claim, it may not cover everything. Well, here's the good news. Everything, everything in your life is covered. Every sin you've ever committed. God knew what you would do before eternity moved into time. So I, I promise you that you will probably sin in the next day or two or week. It, it might be right now. I don't know what's going on in your mind. It might be happening at this moment. God's always known about that. And Christ already paid for all of that. You can't surprise God with your sin. 
First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The one who is perfectly righteous for those who are in rebellion against God, he paid once and for all for all of their sins. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. If you get lost, you can't find Hebrews, just turn a couple books toward the back of your Bible from Titus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. The writer says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And in the book of Hebrews, the word sanctified is similar to the word justified. It means set apart unto God. And the writer says, here's the analogy. Here's the, here's the, the imagery you should see. The priests have to go in day after day after day, and they keep offering the same sacrifices. But in those sacrifices, the people are just reminded of all of their sins. And their sins are covered over for a period of time, and they're set aside, but they're not paid for because the blood of bulls and goats can't pay for human sins. And so what Jesus Christ has done, because his blood is perfect blood, it is the eternal blood of the Son of God, he, he was able to come in and offer one sacrifice for all sins for all time. In other words, your sin is paid for. As Paul will say in Colossians, it was nailed to the cross of Jesus as a certificate of debt which consisted of decrees against you, these, these verdicts that had been rendered that you are in fact a sinner and guilty of your sin and worthy of the wrath of God for your sin, but that has been nailed to the cross of Christ and paid for once and for all. Fully, finally, completely, forever, God has saved you. Now the first time that I got to um, kind of extensively teach this uh, doctrine of eternal security, I was teaching at a, a Bible college in Central Asia. And we had uh, pastors and church planters and evangelists from all over Central Asia, Asia at this Bible college. I was teaching a survey of theology, and I hit the doctrine of eternal security, and I thought, well, we'll spend about 30 minutes on the doctrine of eternal security. And as we got into it, all of them were from, a, all these students were from a background where their churches uh, or the people who discipled them it taught them they could lose their salvation. So I dive into what I think is a 30-minute topic, and man, it's just objection after objection after objection. And so we kept going, and then we went an hour, and we, we, we went two hours. We took a break, and we went another hour. We ended up spending uh, the entire morning discussing, debating, arguing the doctrine of eternal security. And in the process, the light began to go on for some of them. Like, oh my gosh, this, this changes everything about how I relate to God. I, I can relate to God in, in freedom and in security. And they said, can we talk about this more after lunch? So I went to lunch and uh, at lunch I happened to be sitting next to a doctor. He's a U.S. doctor and he was in Central Asia doing some relief work. And he asked me, so what are you teaching about today? I said, well, I'm teaching about doctrine of eternal security. Once you possess eternal life, salvation, life with God, you can never lose it. That's what I'm teaching. 
this, this afternoon. I said, we're having a great time. We're really getting into great discussion. He said, well, you know, not everybody uh, agrees with you on that. And I said, yeah, but I don't know how anybody could possibly disagree with this. It's so clear from Scripture. And he says, I don't agree with you. So, well, you should, and here's why, right? You know what I mean? You know, and I'm loaded right then, right? I mean, I'm, I'm amped up. I've been talking about this for three hours already, and I'm, I'm prepared. Literally, we ended up talking about it another three hours that afternoon and another three hours the following morning. I ended up talking about doctrine of eternal security, I mean, verse by verse, doctrine by doctrine, taking questions for nine hours, right? So I'm, I'm geared up. I'm really geared up. And so I'm going through some of these arguments, and I, and I said to it's Dr. Bassett, Martin Bassett, I said, Dr. Bassett, so this is a free gift. You don't earn a free gift. You don't earn a free gift. You can't lose a free gift. And, and all I could, could come up with at the moment was, uh, to give him an analogy, I had keys to the apartment where I was staying. I said, imagine that I, that I give you the keys to my apartment. It's your apartment. I've given it to you. I'm not asking you to, to, to be a good person to earn it. I don't say run around the building and show me that you're worthy. I'm not asking you to do anything. It's just a free gift. Here it is. Here are the keys. It's your apartment. He says, well, what if I hand them back? I said, well, you can't hand them back. He said, but I want to hand them back. He said, but you can't. You can't hand them back. He said, but I am handing them back. But you, I said, but you can't. He said, but I am. I mean, no, seriously, that's how the conversation is going. I go, okay, we will have to regroup. So that night, I, you know, maybe some of it was jet lag. I think it was just adrenaline. I stayed up for hours, and I began to write out a response to him about the doctrine of eternal security. And I came up with a word picture for him. I said, next day, so Dr. Bassett, so imagine this. Here we are in Central Asia, and I have a massive heart attack. And, and I'm going to die if I don't get a heart transplant. You're the only doctor in the country who can do the heart transplant for me. And it just so happens that you have a donor. Perfect match for me. And you are willing and you are able to give me that heart. I want that heart. I need it. You can only give it. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. But you choose to give this to me. You choose to give me this gift of life. And you take out my old dead heart that's, that's dying and decayed. And you get rid of that. And you put the new heart within me. And I have life. Perfectly free gift. So now imagine that we meet together again in a year. And I say, you know what, Dr. Bassett? I don't want that heart anymore. Take it out. I don't want, I want to give it back. Well, you might say, that's not actually possible. It's not possible for you to give it back. Because that old heart, I, I took it and I destroyed it. It's gone. It doesn't exist any longer. It doesn't exist any longer. You're, you're a different person. You have a different heart. Well, what if I want to take it out myself? Because I'm free, right? Just like your analogy, your picture of you, you give the salvation and then you give it back. And you give it back and you give it back. I said, here's your problem. You're viewing salvation like it's a commodity that's just handed back and forth. But it's not a commodity handed back and forth. It's a transformation of who you are. And you say to me, Dr. Bassett, well, you have freedom and so you can hand it back to me. But that, that's not the nature of freedom. You have freedom to act within your set of choices, your, your realm of who you are. And when God changes you through salvation, you are changed and you don't have the same set of choices. I could say to you, well, I want to take that heart out of me again. Well, I can't. I don't have the ability to do so. I'm not a heart surgeon. Disregarding the fact that that old dead heart doesn't exist any longer. It's not possible. Why? Because I 
have been changed. I'm a new person. So the first reason that we know for sure is this. Because God saved us. He did the surgery on us. Not because we deserved it, because he loved us. The second reason is this. Because I'm new. I'm a different person. I'm a changed person. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The moment that you trust Jesus Christ, you become a different person. You're just not the same any longer. Now, that doesn't mean that every attitude and every behavior and every motivation will immediately change. What it means is that your nature is different. It is new. You now have the Spirit of God residing in you. So as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. That is, the Spirit of God is now an, an, the, an animating presence within us, calling us toward God, toward deeper relationship with God. We still have the flesh in us. Right? We talked about this when I discussed anthropology with you. We still have the flesh residing in us, that, that, that part of us that desires to move away from God, but now we also have the Spirit of God who's calling us closer to God. And as we listen to the Spirit of God, we progressively, gradually, day by day, even though our body is decaying, the outer man is getting worse inside. Our character is being transformed, and as Blake said last week, we will ultimately be glorified. That is our inevitable destiny. When flesh is completely removed, now we're in this transition process in which we are different people, never to be the same again. Or if I can put it like this, when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, the butterfly can never become a caterpillar again. Again, it's a butterfly now. Now, it can get down on the ground and say, I choose not to fly at all. I'm just going to roll around here in the dirt as if I'm a caterpillar. And we would look at that butterfly and say, that's really stupid because you could fly. You should get up and fly. Stop behaving like a caterpillar. Well, I don't want to behave like a butterfly. I just want to live like a caterpillar. You're, well, you know, you can do that, but it's foolish. And the world misses out on your beauty. The world misses out on the transformation that has happened to you. But the fact is this, you can never go back to being a caterpillar. Because you have been changed. So again, at the moment of salvation instantaneously transformations happen to you. Here are a few that Blake listed last week. We have been redeemed. That is, God paid a purchase price for us and bought us out of slavery and bought us into life in his family. Freedom. We've been justified. That is, God has declared us to be in right relationship through Jesus Christ. We're reconciled. We're put back in right relationship, socially, relationally with God. No longer enemies, but now friends. We've been regenerated. We were born dead. Our spirit was unresponsive to the Spirit of God. Now our spirit has been united with the Spirit of God. We are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, God's beloved Son. We've been adopted. We were outside the family of God. Now we're part of the family of God. We've been united with Christ in such a way that when God looks at us, he sees us in Christ. And what's most important about us is that we are in Christ. Okay? All of these things have been done to you and for you. None of these things do you have the capacity to undo. Right? You cannot 
unredeem yourself. You cannot unjustify yourself. You can't unreconcile yourself. You can't unregenerate yourself or take yourself out of the kingdom of God's beloved son. You can't get unadopted. You can't ununite yourself with Jesus Christ. You don't have the power to do that because God did all of these things to you and changed you and made you a new person. So, I handed Dr. Bassett my keys. I said, here's the keys to the apartment. And he tried to hand them back. He said, because I have freedom. So no, I said, you don't have that kind of freedom any longer. Because you are a new creature in Christ. You have been changed. I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans chapter 8 verse 31. Apostle Paul wrote, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That his God has given us his best, of course he will give us everything else. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I I love it when Paul just kind of explodes. You know, he's just everything that's coming to his mind. And, you know, he's got some sentences. You don't often see it in the English translation as well. But in Greek, they just go on like for an entire page because he's just he's just so excited about what he's teaching. And at the end of this chapter here, that's what he's doing. He's saying, you know, I can't imagine anything that could separate us. Not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not things present or things to come, nor powers and heights of death. And finally he goes, nor even any other created thing. Which includes what? Everything except God, right? Only God is uncreated. Everything else is created. That means Satan can't separate you. That means you can't separate you because you're part of the created realm. Only God could separate you. And guess what? God won't because that's not who God is. That's not who God is. That's our third reason. We are secure and we can know for sure because God is faithful. Our security doesn't rest upon our faithfulness. I want you to turn to John chapter 10 and verse 27. Let's read these wonderful verses again. John 10 Verses 27 through 29. My sheep, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. We're one in our nature. One in our being. We're we're, we're one in our purposes. And our purpose is this, to just wrap you up and hold you tight. The beauty of that imagery, you're wrapped inside the, the, hand, the strong hand of Jesus. 
the Savior of the world, and outside of the hand of Jesus, the hand of God the Father wraps you up as well. You cannot escape. Remember when I was a little kid, I used to play that game with my grandfather. You know, he put a quarter in his hand. He said, if you can grab the quarter, you can have the quarter, right? And man, we would play that, play that, play I could never, I could never get the quarter. He was always too fast. He'd just snap that. And I'm thinking, it's just, it's right there. It's right there. But I couldn't get it. He said, okay, well, we'll play a new game. He said, if you can peel back my fingers, you can have the quarter. And man, my grandfather, he was a hardworking blue-collar man, and there was not a possibility ever, even when he was 70, that I, I, I mean, I, I could not move those fingers. And it's always been such a beautiful picture to me of how God has wrapped us up in his hands and he will not let us go. We're safe. We're secure. Why? Because we're in the, the hand of Jesus and the spirit and the, the father is wrapped around us. And then as Paul says in Ephesians, then the spirit also seals us until that day of redemption When our salvation is finally complete, that is Son, Father, Spirit, wrapping you up, keeping you secure. So I might say to my heart surgeon, I don't want this heart any longer. I'm going to take it out. Well, I can't because I don't have the capacity. I don't know how to do it. There are many things that I could do. I could even abuse that heart. I could eat poorly and fail to exercise and take up smoking. I could abuse that heart, but I can't remove it. But couldn't I convince the surgeon to do so? No, I can't because he's taken an oath. It's called the Hippocratic Oath. And he's made a promise to do no harm. That's his nature. It is the nature of God to, in a sense, do no harm. Once he has given you salvation, he will not release that salvation. Read with me John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that is the Father. This is my Father's will. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It will happen. And you may say to yourself, even now, after all that I have spoken, you may say, you know, it's just too good to be true. You know what? We don't, we don't love like this. We don't love the way God loves. God loves differently because that's who God is. We're safe. We're secure. We are protected. We are guarded. And we're guarded forever because of who God is. That's who God is. And you can rest in that. And you can be secure in that. I promise you, you will never find anything that is more motivating in life than knowing that sense of security. So, so what? All right. So how do we apply it? Uh, let, me, let, me give you a, uh, let me give you an illustration. Uh, when I was a senior in college, right? Uh, yeah, 1987. Senior in college, the movie Princess Bride came out. Anybody ever seen Princess Bride? Right? So we're college students. We just watched that over and over and over again because uh, it's very quotable and it was pretty clean. You know, so that's kind of one of our college movies. Um, that we enjoyed. And if you don't, if you know the story, let me just encapsulate real quick. Uh, there's a character, Wesley, and he's a farm boy. And he was a farm boy at a farm where there was a beautiful girl he fell in love with. She eventually fell in love with him because he's just so sweet and kind and wonderful and serving her all the time. But he's poor, so he went away to seek fortune. In the process, he was captured by the Dread Pirate Roberts, who takes no prisoners. Right? Dread Pirate Roberts takes no prisoners. He kills everyone. She hears that he's been taken by that pirate, so she assumes he's dead. He's gone. But he wasn't dead right? because the Dread Pirate Roberts decided to make Wesley his cabin boy. 
And for, I can't remember how long, it was like six, seven years. He's, he's the cabin boy. But this is what the dread pirate Roberts would say to him. Every day, he would say, at the end of the day, good night, Wesley, good work, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Right? So that's how he lived his life. Every day, he heard the same thing. And I ask you, is that any way to live? No, it's not. But God, our Heavenly Father, is not like the dread pirate Roberts. He's a good good father. You can't live a healthy life with that level of insecurity. In a marriage where one spouse is constantly threatening to leave, is there growth? Is there maturity? Is there health? No, there's not. But God isn't like that. God doesn't love like that. God gives us security so that we can grow and we can be healthy. Can we, can we abuse that sense of security? Well, of course we can. But the natural response to that is to say, God, thank you. Thank you. I want, I want to show my gratitude toward you. And I want to know that kind of God better and better and better. So my application point for you is this. I want to challenge you this week to teach this doctrine to one person, one Christian. Don't assume that they know it. I just want you to teach it to one person because you don't really own this for yourself until you can teach it to somebody else. And I know that many of you are going, yeah, okay, that's a great application, but you're not planning on following through. So here I am looking you in the eye right now. See, I'm, I'm watching you and I'm saying, do this. Yeah, I, I promise you. I remember, I remember the first time that I taught it in a college class over at Anderson. There was a, a young man sitting on the front row who'd grown up with this, he'd grown up in a Christian home, but with this deep sense of insecurity about his relationship with Jesus Christ, because he'd, he'd been taught. There are things you can do to lose it. And as I was teaching it, God's spirit broke through to him, and I looked down, he's sitting on the front row, and he was weeping. I swear, I swear to you, he was just, he was weeping. Just overwhelmed, and we talked afterwards, he said, I just, it's almost too good to be true, but I believe it. And I promise you, it changed his entire life. And so I want to challenge you, share this with one person. This will force you to go back and really think about it and own it and and nail some of these verses that demonstrate and prove that God loves you like this and share it with one person this week and see if it doesn't have some element of transformation and their confidence in their relationship with God, and their confidence to go out and to, and to be salt and light in the world, and, and to, to try new things, and to stretch and to grow. Why? Because they know they're safe, and they're secure. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you. I thank you that you don't love like we love. I thank you, Father, that you love in such a way that you, you make us safe, and you make us secure, and you make us confident. And I pray, Father, we would grow in that, that sense of confidence and that we would be willing and to, to be courageous and daring and to share that with others, even when they may disagree, that we can just plant that seed of hope that you really are that good. Father, we love you and we declare our trust in you this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week of sharing. Look forward to hearing all of your stories.